inspired by the Canadian Federation of the Blind. Outlook, a show about accessibility, advocacy, and equality. I'm Brian. And I'm Carrie. And we're two siblings who happen to be blind. Outlook. On Radio Western. And welcome to another episode of Outlook, home edition again this week. I'm in my apartment here in London, Ontario, and I have Carrie zoomed in from Woodstock, Ontario. How are you doing today, Carrie? Not too bad. Glad to hear it. Yeah, we're recording this one on January the... 10th. Yes. And something's coming up a month from today, but uh, we'll get into that on a future show. Right, Kara? Oh, a certain person's birthday. Last of <laughs> yeah. her 30s. All right. But uh, yeah, this will be airing the, the final Monday of January. So January 30th, 2023. So nice to be back finishing up Braille Literacy Month, I guess. This is, will be the final show in, uh, in that month. So yeah. always celebrating okay. Braille here on the show. Yeah, I would love to talk about Braille, but there's a lot to get to in today's episode, for sure. So including a lot of, we can talk about audio. There's some experts on the call on the show today. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So yeah, we have a really exciting guest lined up for today's program. Somebody that I actually don't think I was really aware of until recently, which we'll get into this, this concert that uh, our guest today helped organize, but uh, I'd like to just, it, yeah. yeah, so I'd like to just welcome to Outlook here today, Jonathan Mosen. Welcome hey, to, uh, to the show. Thank you. Good to be here with you both. So you're actually, when are you actually recording it? You're actually recording this the day after us. Yeah, you're from Say the again? future. You're, you're coming in from the future. Oh, I, guess, I see so. what you mean. Yes, <laughs> that's right. So it's, it's the 11th of January here. So I can tell you the future is bright. <laughs> I always think that's funny. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And my kids, when I used to take them to the US, uh, sometimes I'd take them along to conferences that I'd be going to, like CSUN or ATIA or the NFB convention or whatever. And they really enjoyed the fact that they would go back in time and we'd actually leave New Zealand and then land before we left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's so cool. I mean, we've, we've had a guest on before actually from Australia, which is pretty much a similar uh, time difference. And and we've, we've actually had one person on from New Zealand previously, but they'd already moved to Canada at the time. So it's, it's really great to have you on from, uh, you know, across the world. And, uh, you know, what's, what's it like there in January? I guess you're in, your, you're in your summer over there. Yeah, we're enjoying a summer. I mean, it's been an odd summer because there have been a few cyclones around this year. Uh, but we have a wonderful tradition in New Zealand where the place pretty much closes down over the summer period. So I finished work on... Gosh, when was it? About the 22nd of December, and I don't go back until the 24th of January. So it's really nice to recharge and get that break because I tend to keep a pretty busy schedule the rest of the year. So how do you, how do you celebrate the holidays then, this time of year that's sort of just passed? Do you celebrate there in, in your warmer climate in summer in New Zealand? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of people from the Northern Hemisphere wonder whether we do Christmas in June or something, but no, Christmas <laughs> is just on the 25th of December. And it's interesting because Christmas is this hybrid here. We have a lot of songs and themes that have developed relating to summer. But then, of course, we also have a lot of the traditional Northern Hemisphere carols or songs that mention winter. And it's really interesting. One of the things that we've done for about uh, 12 years now 
is we do a countdown on Mushroom FM just before Christmas where many people in the blind community and some who enjoy listening to Mushroom FM vote for their top 10 Christmas songs. And then we play the top 100 back in a 10 hour live sort of extravaganza thing. And it's become a huge Christmas tradition for blind people around the world. And it's great because we have listeners. And I think last I looked about between 70 and 80 countries, we have some songs or the popular ones, but also songs from around the world that we otherwise wouldn't have heard. So it's one of my favorite things about the Christmas season is hearing all those different songs that come up. Oh, I love that about the world, all around the world, people that you talk to, and it just shows that it's, it reminds me of a podcast I listen to where they get their listeners, uh, their audience to send in different, their favorite foods from the, around the world, wherever they're from. And then they try yeah. to track it down at one of those giant international food stores or whatever, and try it out on the podcast. So just being able to just do a spin around the world and get a whole bunch of different people sharing, yeah, what their Christmas favorites are from wherever they're from. Like you said, it could be different depending on what region you're, you're living in. Yeah, and that's one of the things that's happened in New Zealand. Some people have kept with the traditions of turkey and cranberry sauce and all the hot things that go on. And other people have said over the years, what on earth are we doing sweltering away in the kitchen in the summertime, eating these hot foods and cooking these hot foods? And so some New Zealanders now have salads at Christmas time and they're out on the beach and things like that. So there's a bit of variation creeping in. Nice. Yeah, I guess you <laughs> yeah. can mix it up there a bit and you don't always have yeah. to just be having all this hot food when it's depending how hot it is outside in the in, in the summer there when you're celebrating the, the holidays so mm. but uh, yeah we're really excited to have jonathan mosen on our show today and i actually wasn't really aware of you until um and you also mentioned mushroom fm you put mm. on an event um last year or at least were involved in the organizing of an event um that aired on mushroom fm as well as a bunch of other internet radio stations called We're With You. And we mentioned mm. this a little bit on Outlook actually already. So I thought if you could maybe just start off by telling our listeners a bit about that event and how it all came together. And just the, the concept itself is so great and it happened at such an important time where, where the money was definitely needed, the fundraising. And uh, I definitely tuned in that day for, for, I don't think I made it for the whole 11 and a half hours, but I uh, <laughs> caught, caught a good portion of it. So It was a marathon. Well, I, I, I'm interested in international politics. Uh, I'm a bit of a political junkie. And so when Russia invaded Ukraine, I covered that on my Mosin at Large podcast, which probably has one of the larger followings in the blind community about um, blindness issues. And we get many, many thousands of listeners to that every week. And so I thought it was really important to have a blind person on who came from Ukraine and who could talk about some of the experiences that he was getting back from friends and family members in Ukraine. And we talked about schools for the blind in Ukraine and how they might be affected. And I came across a post on an email list that I'm on from Jafar Siddiq Ahmed, who is in Singapore. And he had this brilliant idea of seeing if he could put together a concert. Originally, he was going to raise money for his church's efforts to assist people. And he thought, well, maybe blind people could put a concert together to help raise some funds. And so I contacted him and I said, if you would like me to help in any way, whether it be emceeing the event or just coordinating the blind community's response, count me in. And so we started collaborating on that. 
And through the contacts that I had, we involved the National Federation of the Blind and a number of other organizations. And I kind of thought, you know, this is one of those times when we all need to come together. And so Mushroom FM could have carried it on our own. But in the spirit of a lot of the radiothons that I was involved with when I worked in commercial radio here in New Zealand, I thought the best thing that we can do is open this thing up and we wouldn't play Mushroom FM station elements or anything like that. We would basically make this an open event. Any station in the blindness community who wanted to carry it could. And I think we got about 20 odd stations who carried this event right around the world in their own way. And uh, it was an amazing coming together. I think one of the most important things about that event was people needed assurance that if they gave their time and their music and, of course, their money, and money is pretty tight for many blind people, so it's a big deal to donate to these things. They needed assurance that the money was going to go somewhere credible so that it was going to get to people who needed it. And so involving the World Blind Union, who had set up something called the Ukrainian Unity Fund, was really important for the credibility of the event. And uh, they helped us a lot as well. NFB helped with infrastructure. And it was a very special thing to be a part of. As I say, it was a marathon. Uh, it, it took a lot of work to uh, do all the technical side of it, to coordinate it. But the credit really goes to all of those blind musicians. And I was absolutely awestruck and humbled by how much talent there is in the blind community and how generously those musicians contributed their gifts to this cause. And it's something when I think back on it now, I actually didn't listen to it again until quite recently I skimmed the archive of it. And I thought, you know, this was really, this was quite a special moment, a really special thing to be a part of. Yeah, no, I definitely, when I saw about that, it was, you know, just a couple of months after the invasion of Ukraine and it was really hard to watch that. And specifically, yeah, I thought a lot about people who are blind and other disabilities in, in that country and the schools for the blind and, and what people were doing and how they were managing that. Just when you're worried, you're worried about people generally, then, you know, spe specifically with disabilities, you wonder what, what it's like there for them. And so to have something like this that we could all do, and like you say, coming together, you know, you, you've interviewed um, the president of NFB on your on your own podcast, Mosin at Large. So you know, working with NFB here in the in North America and all across the world, and all these internet radio stations for blind people to actually feel like we could do something. And when people come together, raising you know over one hundred thousand dollars, people felt uh, great about that, and mm. it shows that they're you know the blind people and other pe people with disabilities in the world. We have power, and we have a voice, and we have. When we come together, we can do great things and we can have an effect on things that are going on in the world that are so hard like that. That's exactly it. I think sometimes these problems seem so big that people think, well, what can I possibly do about it? And what we showed was that there are actually really good practical things that you can do. And of course, there was a school in Ukraine for the blind that was bombed. You also have to consider the impact of being a refugee when you are a blind person and there are different things to consider like just trying to get by in a new country where the language might be different and assistive technology might be lacking I, i've never felt so foreign shall we say than when i've been say in an airport in transit in a country where um, not everybody is speaking english and you know when you can't gesture and gesticulate 
and get your point across that way and all you have is the spoken word and your spoken word is different from their spoken word it's an incredible challenge and so it's a it's a wonderful thing that we did to be able to just make that positive contribution yeah and i mean it really did make me think about blind people in other countries and that's something that we like to talk about more and more on outlook is you know the more people we can guests we can have on our show to talk about their experience in a different country and you know of course i don't i don't really know that much about Ukraine or, or the people there. So it makes me wonder kind of how they would deal with a situation like that. Obviously, it's terrible for anyone who lives there. But if you're blind, it creates its own difficulties. And then, you know, for example, too, my sister and I both have kidney failure. So I thought originally there are people who, you know, might need medications or dialysis yeah, or whatever. Multiple disabilities. Right. So there's so much yeah. that went into that. But uh, that event definitely was very impressive uh, from 2022. And I thought it would be... Mm. Uh, Good thing to, to mention right off top, because I think it's something that our guest today, Jonathan Mosen, was involved with and uh, definitely made a pretty big difference. So, Thank you. Yeah, it's something I look back on with a lot of fondness. And so much talent out there. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, we've, we've got so much talent in our community. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah, I think I kind of found out about this concert a little later, else I would have maybe submitted something myself, actually. So it's... Uh, All right. But uh, at least at least I got to make a donation. So that felt good too, to help out where I could. Well, thank you. Um, but I guess I'll just let uh, all our listeners know that if you want to learn more about Jonathan Mosen, you can go to mosen.org. That's M-O-S-E-N.org. And of course, you mentioned your podcast, Mosen at Large, which people can find wherever they get their podcasts. And uh, yeah, I was reading a lot. I mean, there's tons of information out there about you on your website and so much to cover and we have an hour so it's always trying to figure out kind of what points to to, <laughs> to pick but also we like to keep it kind of casual and a bit more of a discussion like how we kind of just jumped into conversation there at the beginning instead of it being a full-out interview question answer question answer right sort of feel so i think the three topics care that we we really want to focus on today are radio broadcasting advocacy and technology and I know your podcast, the Mosin at Large podcast, deals a lot with, with technology. Something that, Kara, we, we talk about tech on Outlook, but it's not necessarily our main focus. I think our main focus would be more um, advocacy and accessibility and, um, and stuff like that. But of, of course, we, we cover technology as well. Well, we like to bring people in who normal, know more about all that because, I mean, specifically speaking for me, I use the, the technology I use, is, it's been you know, groundbreaking for me in my life. And like you say, if you mm -hmm. are exposed to some sort of conflict, that would be like to lose that or the fear of losing, losing that. And, but um, it's, it's not just, you know, busy browsing social media all the time. It's, it's the technology that makes my life more independent and, and uh, convenient. And so I talk about that, but I'm no technology whiz. So it's great to talk to people who know more about it than I do. And, well, uh, and technology is a tool, isn't it? I like to yeah. think technology is the means to an end. So in a way, technology is the enabler that allows us to even better do things like advocacy and, and uh, make a difference in the world. So I know some people geek out on the technology for its own sake. And I guess I'm a bit like that, having developed quite a bit of it in my career. But I also think that the, the key thing about technology is that it levels the playing field. It makes blindness less disabling than it otherwise would be. For sure. But um, let's let's talk a bit about your early life because uh, you've um, got some stuff about that on your website, as Brian said, mosen.org. But uh, you want to tell us a bit about your blindness condition? We're not really familiar with it. 
Yeah, it's a condition called Norrie's disease, and it's quite rare. I, I was reading recently that there might only be 500 people in the world with it. So there you go. And it's an X-linked thing. Um, it it sometimes manifests itself in other ways. It almost always comes with the bonus of a hearing impairment absolutely free. And that one gen, that tends to occur over time. So I heard, I, was, I think pretty normally when I was a child, but then progressively have um, sustained greater amounts of hearing loss. And I wear behind the ear hearing aids these days. And some people with Norries also end up going with cochlear implants at some point. Some also experience some um, cognitive issues as well. So it's uh, it's a kind of a mixed thing. And it's one of those um, one of those medical conditions where uh, it 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 jumps generations. So for example, I have four children, two boys and two girls, and uh, they're all sighted. When my first daughter was born, we had quite a lot of people who had come up to my then wife and me and say, uh, is she, you know, like you, you know, wouldn't use the blind word, couldn't possibly use the blind word. Uh -huh. And so we developed the stock phrase of saying, no, actually she's sighted, but we love her just the same. <laughs> but we, uh, so we've got four sighted children, and my daughters have a 50% chance of having a blind son. So that's how Norris works. Um, I don't often think about the medical side of it. The yeah. blindness doesn't bother me at all because it's my norm. And if sight was offered me tomorrow, I would absolutely decline to take it. But because I am used to hearing and hearing plays a big part of my life, and it's kind of been this insidious slipping away, if I was offered some sort of treatment that could restore my hearing, I would definitely, you know, sell my body to science or whatever to, to make that happen. So, you know, for, for me, the blindness is just a characteristic that, that I'm perfectly comfortable with, but it's the deterioration thing that makes me feel differently about the hearing. Yeah, I think it's so important that you bring, out the, uh, bring up the, the hearing impairment or hearing loss, or I don't know what the best term is. We're always discussing words and you know, what's, yeah. what's sort of applicable and stuff. But I think it's, I can relate to that myself. Um, unlike my sister who used to have a bit more vision and she's gradually lost that it's been a bit more of an adjustment. Whereas for me, I was born um, blind. We actually both have a pretty rare condition as well called senior Loken syndrome, which includes the Lieber's congenital amaurosis, which is a blindness condition. That's a little bit more common than the syndrome itself. But right. for me, I was born, um, for, for, you know, the purposes of this show, totally blind. I can see a little bit of light and dark, but that's about it. And it's always been the same. So yeah, for me, the blindness isn't something I really think about much day to day. It's not really something I, it, that I, you know, consumes my energy. It's more, if I were to start losing my hearing, I think that would be more of an adjustment. And, uh, yeah. And people think I'm, I'm weird or, or trying to make some sort of bizarre political point when I say that I'm not interested in science. But when you think about it, if you woke up in the morning, if, if I woke up in the morning, completely sighted, what I'd be exposed to is this massive amount of visual data that I wouldn't be able to understand. You would have to go into rehabilitation, essentially, to know what that visual data is. I mean, I'm not instantly going to know that something is red or something is green, or when I look in a particular direction, this thing is a doorway. You know, you learn those things as a child, as a very young child. Um, my first granddaughter arrived two days ago as we record this. So uh -huh. I'm very, uh -huh. yeah, I'm very conscious, conscious of the fact that 
children when they're at that age they're just absorbing so much about the world and it's a miracle and it's amazing but if you're in your 50s as i am now and suddenly you had this tap this reservoir of information turned on you you're not instantly going to be able to know what to do with that information and because i'm so adapted to blindness i just don't see the point of it yeah yeah we talk a lot on the show about you know if you want to call them the 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 different kind of models of disability and most blind people don't don't focus too much on the medical side otherwise mm. you would drive your you know you would take up your whole life with running here and there and trying to get some hope for some medical improvements that might or might not come along but then the question about multiple disabilities and would you the question would what if you lose your hearing more how would you handle that over losing your sight would you want one of those back uh, and it's not the same answer for everybody so we love on this show to hear people's perspectives on that because it just mm. shows the world and, and it brings that to our audience that everybody would experience that differently there's no right right answers for these things for sure yeah and i think the fact that i have this degenerative hearing condition is a bit of a blessing in some ways because it's certainly given me a lot more empathy for people whose sight deteriorates over time and again that is really insidious because you feel it slipping away and so it's a completely different way to feel from the way that I feel about blindness and it can be very tough to make that adaptation when I was younger I worked briefly in the rehab field for the blindness agency in New Zealand and I met some amazing people you know this was back in the early 90s and so I met people who'd been through terrible torture in uh, Japanese prisoners of war camp for example uh, who withstood that but then blindness came later in life and it was just kind of the final blow for that uh, um, guy and then I met a nun who woke up one morning completely blind she went to sleep fully sighted and she for the first time in her life questioned her faith and wondered what purpose was God serving taking her sight away so late in her life and so it is a huge trauma and we all experience these things differently and you know i don't i don't think we should judge people for the way they feel about them there's there's no one way to do blindness or disability in general yeah and it is always that balance between the the medical model and social model and i do think well i i find it interesting to know the name of a condition you know sometimes some people you ask how that what their what their blindness is caused by or whatever and sometimes they people don't even know. And I mean, that's totally their, their right. If it's not something that they, and you know, sometimes these things are so rare they're you never know for sure, even sometimes, but I do appreciate you sharing that the, the information about the, the Nori disease, because I'd never, you know, heard of that before. And I do think it's important to bring that awareness yet. We're not at all on this show. We always focus on, there's this whole idea in the, in society about fixing somebody when really what, you know, <laughs> blindness isn't something that needs to be fixed. It's, it's better served often if, if we spend our energy and time finding ways for society and things to be more accessible and inclusive for everyone. So Yeah, and New Zealand's gone all in big time on the social model of disability. And in my day job as a chief executive of a national disability agency, I talk about this a lot. So we don't talk about people with disabilities in New Zealand. We always talk about disabled people. And I'm a big fan of that. And in terms of the social model, one of the things that I always say to people when I'm trying to explain it, that the social model for those not familiar essentially says that it is the world around us that disables someone. 
it's not their medical condition that makes them disabled. It's the failure of society to accommodate it that makes them disabled. And the way I illustrate that point to decision makers and employers and other people that I talk to regularly is to say, let's say that it's 3 a.m. and there's been some sort of disaster of some kind or outage, which means that all the streetlights are out and the two of us have to get into my building and my office is on the third floor of the building. Now I'm going to go into that building. I'm going to go up the stairs as I always like to do. I'm going to get to my office. Who would be the disabled one then? It certainly wouldn't be me. It makes no difference that the lights are out and that it's absolutely pitch black out there. Suddenly it will be the sighted person that hasn't been taught to operate in a non-visual way that becomes the disabled person. And that's really what the social model of disability is about. Yeah, and I think blindness, as we talk all the time, is the big fear in the world of, of blindness people have is the fact that, like you say, you could wake up tomorrow with it when you, when you don't, when your vision, you're seeing fine today. And the, that fear that people hear so much in society about why blindness is so scary and so disabling and so bad, uh, most people don't know blind people maybe to know the, the, the reality of it. Everybody's living differently despite blindness or with blindness, it's that whole question of the fear that people don't like to sort of face that is what I think. And so on this show, we'd really just try to talk about these issues as, as real as we can, because we don't want people to hear the, the, you know, the messages they've been getting all this time that have been so wrong and so off. So it's, it's hard to talk about this stuff, but it's, it's important. Yeah. And sight's kind of like a pocket calculator, I reckon, because you sometimes hear these math teachers from past eras and things lamenting the facts that uh, people can't add anymore. They can't do basic sums. They have to use a calculator. And sight is a bit like that. If you've got sight, it's a very dominant sense and it's only natural that you're going to depend on it. And so what then happens is that people think if you don't have that sight, somehow you're you're not going to be able to be up to much. People just can't imagine how people can function with such a dominant sense absent. And um, so that, that's one of the things. I did a piece in 2021 now. I just mentioned in passing without even thinking about it because it's how I genuinely feel about how proud I am to be blind. And I feel that very strongly because I think there is a culture around blindness. There are all sorts of ways in which blind people have contributed to the world and made it a better place. And somebody challenged me on this on my podcast and said, you know, you cannot be serious. How can you be proud of having such a debilitating condition? And so I, I put together this piece called why I am proud to be blind and it really went viral. Um, NFB published it in the Braille Monitor. I had to do a transcript of it for that. And um, you can read that at mosin.org slash blindpride. But every so often I get this flurry of emails from people who've just discovered this through some source or other. It's kind of being circulated around the blind community. And I think we should encourage blind pride. I am a, a very proud blind person. And so that might be something that listeners might like to read if they want to explore that at mosin.org slash blindpride. Yeah, we would have checked that out. Probably we did an episode last year on our podcast here about blind pride and the, the fact that the world uses that like blind rage, blind faith, blind pride, uh, and how we can actually, how we actually mean it when we say it and why mm. we, why we say it at all. And basically this episode, and if you go on mosin.org, that, your whole life story, everything you've done shows that just in just your life because you've gotten on with it and you've done so much 
and you, like you say, you've traveled all over the world and written so many pieces like the one you just referenced that we should check out. And, and because it just shows uh, the different opinions, but it, you're going to get people like that caller who are like, you're not serious, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's a topic that's come up on this show before. There's a, there's a book, I don't know if you've heard of it, uh, Jonathan, that um, it's called Their Plant Eyes. Oh, yeah. I interviewed, I did like a two hour interview with the author of that. Right. Great. Great. Yes. Because we've, yeah. we've had oh, Leona. I gotta find that one. We've had Leona yeah. Godin on our show before yeah, as well. And she's, she's brilliant. Very, she brilliant. is. Yeah. And she's big on the blind pride stuff too. And, you know, we're, yeah. nobody's telling anyone what to do. Like if somebody is adjusting, it is it's like anything in life. It can be an adjustment for some people, but for some people, it is something to celebrate. And I think that is an air, a direction that we're moving towards, which is nice to see this, this change. Man, when I read that book, uh, when I read Leona's book, I was bouncing around the house and I said to my wife, oh my God, I think I found my soulmate. And she said, oh dear. <laughs> but it just, it resonated with me because it just reflected so accurately the way that I feel about my blindness and how we can be proud of our history and our struggles and the way that we've overcome our struggles and the contributions that we've made. So that was, you know, talking to Leona on the, that show was just a, a, a wonderful experience for me. Yeah, that's, that's awesome to hear. And uh, of course, you've heard of that book. I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah. so great. And it's, well, it's I'm glad it's getting, it's, I'm glad it's getting out there because when I read it, when I heard it about it being written and then I got to get my hands on it, I was so excited. And of course, yeah. we want perspectives from all over the world and with people who are blind to hear what it's like. If, the, if this isn't your story, you know, she says in the book, it's a lot about the Western the story of blindness and the history of blindness in the West. And we want to hear more perspectives. We need other people to write about, about their parts of the world or whatever. But just ex as, as it stands, that book is just a great handbook about blindness to learn all the different parts of it that are so, that haven't been talked about. So. Mm. Absolutely. We, we always recommend it to our listeners, the, Their Plant Eyes by M. Leona Godin. But care, we're already coming up on the halfway point. Everything just oh, no. flies by so quick. There's so much to <laughs> talk we need about. Like, we need like 11.5 hours to talk about it all. And <laughs> people should go to, um, you know, Jonathan's website to hear more because there's so much on, on, available through right. his bio and everything. Yeah, if you go, if you go to mosen.org, that's M-O-S-E-N, you can find the Mosen at Large podcast. Um, we're speaking today on Outlook with... Jonathan Mosen from New Zealand, a totally blind chief executive, advocate, entrepreneur, technology expert, and broadcaster. So many things, so much more to talk about, but we're going to take a quick break here now on Outlook, and we'll be right back after this. Outlook. On Radio Western. Welcome back to Outlook on Radio Western 94.9. And we are talking with Jonathan Mosen. Uh, you can find out more about him at mosen.org. Um, and we were talking before the break about well, their plant eyes, the book we always talk about on the show, but about blind pride and about his blindness and his other disability with the Norris disease. Um, thanks again, Jonathan, for being on Outlook. It's great. I'm enjoying the chat. Me too. So on your website, um, you describe your, yourself as a fusion of geekdom <laughs> and broadcasting and management. So geekdom, you used that word before. What does that mean for you in your life? I mean, I like to play with gadgets. I, I like to think, too, that it keeps my brain fresh because I like to um, learn about new tools. Sometimes 
I get offered technology for my podcast to evaluate. And so I have to get really familiar with it to the point that I can teach others via the podcast how to use it. And then I put the podcast out and often send the technology back and forget it. And then sometimes a year or two down the track, I find myself needing to learn about that technology again. I go back and listen to my own stuff. So I guess that's a kind of an e-karma going on there that um, because I've done all the work in the past, I can refer to it to reteach myself. So I enjoy that. And um, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I, I consider myself quite lucky that I seem to have an aptitude for this technology. I have had since I was a kid in the days of the Versa Braille and the Apple IIe computers, and often I would be the one who was pulled out of class to help the resource room teachers at the high school that I attended, where there were a whole bunch of blind people uh, figure out the technology, and it just made sense to me. But then I'm also a communications professional, so having that combination of that high level of computer knowledge and the ability to communicate it has served me quite well. And really, you know, one of the big breakthroughs for me was starting ACB radio back in 1999. It was a really revolutionary idea then. And then I started a show in 2000 called Main Menu. And um, that was really quite a breakthrough because it, it was a grassroots thing for two hours every week. We had blind people from around the world for the first time using the internet to put together um, technology reviews and analysis and things from a blindness perspective. And so I've been doing this sort of thing for a very long time now. Yeah, I think it's so great that you that you bring up radio specifically. Um, you know, as you said, you've you've worked for a bunch of radio stations over the years. Um, the current internet radio station you have up online is mushroomfm.com. People can find that online. Um, but I thought if you could talk a little bit about your childhood and your early interest in radio, because I think this is an area that we can we can sort of connect on. I've I've always had a major interest in radio. Finally got on the air on the, on the university station here in London, Ontario, when I turned 30 with a music show and then followed that up about a year later with this show, Outlook, the talk show. So I currently have two shows on this on the station. And just a little bit about the, the early years, I, I, you know, people can read your website and learn so much more. But I mean, you definitely got involved at a very early age. And I'm kind of just curious what it was like back at that time and, and how the interest started and uh, kind of how it led up to where you are today. I was saying to my wife the other day, actually, that this year sometime, and I don't remember exactly when, uh, it will be 50 years since I first went on the radio. And that happened because um, I was always interested in gadgets and things. And one of the first things that I learned very early was how to dial a telephone. And it was dialing a telephone then. We had a rotary dial. And I would call into this talkback show that was on a radio station and um, just chat away. I don't know what on earth a four-year-old was really talking about much. I do remember excitedly talking about having my picture in the paper and things. And anyway, one day my um, one day my parents got a telegram. So that's dating it. They got this telegram from the manager of the radio station asking if they would call him. And so they thought that it was a kind of a cease and desist thing. Stop your boy from playing with the phone and calling up. <laughs> so. But actually what they wanted to know was, would it be okay if uh, they asked me into the radio station to kind of do this show for kids at Christmas time? So I was very, very young. I was super excited about it. And so that meant that I grew up in the public eye, which um, is not always easy. And, you know, perhaps it, there were some scars associated with that because some of the kids resented the 
the profile that I had and some of the teachers did too, but it did really fuel my interest in the medium, my passion for it. And when I started thinking about a career, when I was in high school, and talking to some people in radio, I became conscious of the fact that there were some people who were really skeptical about a blind person working in radio. How would you work the equipment? And there's all, all these how would you questions. So I decided at that stage that the best thing to do was to um, do a demo, to, to, to prove them wrong in the most practical sense possible. And in those days, you could get a license. You could apply to an authority called the Broadcasting Tribunal, which handed out radio licenses, you could get temporary radio licenses. And so I put together this very lengthy application. It was surprisingly bureaucratic. And I remember doing it all on the Apple IIe with Braille Edit, which is going back a very long time. And I wrote this long application, all the information they wanted, and I sent it in. And we actually got granted a license to set up a commercial radio station for two weeks at the School for the Blind. And then I needed to fund it. And so we went out, we raised advertising and um, got enough to hire a professional radio equipment company to erect a big mast in a paddock at the back of the school for the blind. And we had 250 watts on AM and we did the whole thing and we called it Radio Enterprise. So then what I did when we were about to set this radio station up, I contacted every single person in the radio industry that I could think of broadcasters, program directors, station managers. And I said, hey, come out and see yeah, us blind kids at the School for the Blind and see blind people doing radio. We had some of the big personalities of the day doing a guest show or two on the station. What it meant was that when I was ready to um, think about getting a job in radio, I knew everybody. I had all the contacts and mm. they couldn't deny that I could do radio because they'd seen me doing it. And so getting uh, on commercial radio was was a snap after that because i basically took control of my own destiny and made it happen yeah you say that all the time brian that when you walked into radio western for the first few times you come in with some ideas of how you think you can manage the equipment uh, in the station because there is that big question mark there even though blind people you think great career for the you know it's all about the voice but there's so much that goes on behind the scenes and all the equipment and and it's it's changed over the, over the years like all technologies have uh so it's great that you you know put your your face and your name out there like you said in that way it has some drawbacks to, to a point but if you had you were doing it for you and you were showing people what you what you can do not just you know staying in one place and um really taking it to them so they understand yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, you, you don't want to wait too long for opportunity to knock. I don't think you've you've got to try and make things happen. And and you're right, technology has changed. So when I got into the industry, we were using carts, uh, little little cartridge machines, and we were using uh, CDs and things like that. So um, these days, what you have to contend with is if you're going into a radio station, is the playout system that they're using accessible and can it be scripted and things like that. So there are some new considerations now. So it changes all the time. Yeah, I mean, I was so lucky, like going into Western here in London, Ontario, when I started the shows, they were very understanding and open and they didn't, you know, they didn't bring up the blindness really at all. It was kind of me who, who mentioned that, but I'd already went to school for audio engineering. So I had a bit of a pretty good hold on the console and all that. But yeah, for a lot of people, when you can see and you look at it and there's tons of faders and buttons everywhere, they're like, how can you use that? But 
Yeah. You know, for me, <laughs> for me, a lot of it's memorization. Um, you know, I know some people put braille labels on. I've never actually really done that. I more just count and, and memorize. Or other kind but, of sticky tactile things. Yeah. Any sort of markers that, that people can use. Um, yeah, I've but, never uh, used markers either. And it's interesting because whenever I went to a new radio station, it was always the ops guy. In those days, it always was a guy. It was a, the, the ops person who would say, ah, well, you may have been able to work in these other stations, but there's no way a blind person can possibly use our equipment. And I would always prove them wrong. And But you kind of, that is one of the challenges of being a blind person is no matter what your track record what you've done in the past it's almost like you have to prove yourself over and over again and that can be a little bit frustrating sometimes we don't like to think about that but it's reality so it's great that we say when everything works and when somebody's persevered in that but we also have to talk about the reality of it that people are facing day to day so people know that you know if you if you're experiencing that you're not alone no it's it's tough it is and i was reading a book recently over the my summer which made the point that mental health issues and uh, certain kinds of diseases are more prevalent in minorities of all kinds, including disabled people. And part of that is because of the constant sort of battle mode that you're in. I'm, I'm starting to do some work for my podcast when it comes back from the summer break. And I've got two stories that I'm working on. And both of them are appalling. One involves a woman who just walked into a bar. It sounds like the beginning of a joke, you know, a blind woman <laughs> walks into a bar. But the bar person there refused to serve her because she didn't have a carer and uh, serving alcohol to a blind person was a health and safety risk. I'm thinking, what, what year are we in? And then another uh, blind couple with a one-year-old child were just wanting to get home from their holiday and three times the airline that they'd chosen to travel with said they would not let them fly unless a carer flew with them because they had made a judgment that somehow the parents weren't competent to take care of the child on the aircraft in the event of an emergency. And so, you know, the thing about this stuff is that you never know when it's going to happen. And you're sometimes on your guard that maybe discrimination might occur and you're mentally prepared for it. But inevitably, it seems to me these things happen when you've let your guard down and you're just trying like everybody else to enjoy yourself or get something done and somebody does something ridiculous. And so we shouldn't deny that it really can be fatiguing and incredibly damaging to mental health to have to be on your guard for it all the time. Yeah, well, I think you you transition very, uh, very nicely there into <laughs> advocacy, obviously tough stuff um, that you're, you're bringing up there. But these things happen and we need to talk about them more and more. I mean, mm. I could talk I could talk radio all day, but uh, the show is only an hour. <laughs> Me so, too. Um, well, yeah, we, basically, as I was saying, we could have we should, we'd need a three parter with you, Jonathan, to talk, you know, one episode about policy and advocacy, one episode about broadcasting, one episode about technology. There's just so much to, to get to in all those areas. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a good introductory episode for people to kind of get to know Jonathan Mosen, who who haven't heard of him before in the, in the Outlook audience there, and then maybe have you on again someday to talk in more detail about some of these things, because there's yeah. so much out there. And I also just want to let our listeners know, um, if people really want a, a deep dive into Jonathan's history, there's a, there's a nine-part audio story called In the Arena, the Jonathan Muzzin story on your website. And I actually just started listening to it, and there's actually some clips of you on the radio, I think maybe even calling in when you were extra, like really young. So yeah, I, th so I thought that was really neat to hear and uh, people should definitely <laughs> look that up. Yeah, it was an interesting exercise because um, I, I had just, you know, I've been involved in the assistive technology industry for a long, long time. I 
managed products at Humanware for uh, quite some years. And then I was at Freedom Scientific for about 12 years looking after their blindness products on the hardware side and had been working with Ira. And then when I got the job as CEO of Workbridge, which I'm still doing, and I got that job in 2019, at the same time as that, um, I also received my my honor um, from from the Queen. So I uh, thought that that was a good time. Yeah, a lot of people had said, we, we, we want you to do a bio, and I didn't want to write an autobiography. So um, I said to Glenn Gordon, would you like to, to uh, do this piece and ask all the difficult questions and things? So... Um, that was a way of getting that done. So um, we, we might have to do an update one day. I was going to say, what was it like to to sit for that and to put that all together? It's all about I you, mean, kinda. It, 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 it was funny. I mean, at the end of it, I thought, well, uh, to think I did all that, as the old song says. Um, and, yeah. you know, so, some of it's bittersweet. Um, the, the thing about having the kind of profile, I guess, um, in the blind community that I've had is that you know, you, 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 you kind of make your mistakes in public and that kind of thing. So some of it was pretty tough, but Glenn was great. I mean, uh, Glenn's an excellent interviewer and he asked the questions that needed to be asked. So it was a good mental exercise. You talked a bit about mental health. And so you attended schools for the blind as a child. Maybe at mm. the, we are coming to the end here, so it's kind of a weird time to bring it up, but I just would like your thoughts on some of this misconduct that's coming out more and more in the last few years in the blindness community and here in North America. Um, you spoke about it, how it's affected you and the things you've seen with it in New Zealand. Um, where do you, what are your thoughts on what, that, you know, talking about that now with what you've sort of, some of the things you've been through, as you said, bittersweet memories. And Well, for me, it's been very therapeutic. We are just concluding in New Zealand, a Royal Commission of Inquiry into abuse in care. Right. And originally, I was contacted by that commission to say, we haven't heard too much from the blind community. And I said to them, well, I think that could be because many of us didn't realize that the School for the Blind here was covered by the commission. So I got the commissioner on Mosin at large, and we talked about that. And uh, I I had some pretty um, um, difficult experiences uh, where I was abused at the School for the Blind. And so I gave testimony first in private, and then I agreed to do it in public, which was actually really difficult. Um, but I felt like if I couldn't do it, then uh, how could I expect others to do it? And so I felt like I had an obligation to. And also the thing that the reason why it was so therapeutic for me is that I became the chairman of the board of the blindness agency here in New Zealand uh, a little over 20 years ago now. And um, I was aware that a lot of blind people were struggling with the abuse that they had suffered and the lack of acknowledgement of that abuse. And so one of my great desires when I was in the role as chair was that we apologize and acknowledge the uh, abuse. And I couldn't get it done um, because many on the board were worried about legal cul culpability what would it be exposing the organization to if they acknowledged some sort of responsibility for it? And so all I could really do was some weasel words, really. I thought that, I thought that, that, that what I was really permitted to say was just not adequate. And I have had tremendous guilt about that for a very long time. And I felt that I had failed the community, um, that I couldn't get that done for all my powers of persuasion. I had failed. 
And so being able to talk about that um, and get it on the record and hopefully facilitate an apology in due course from that organization is writing a wrong that I was not able to write when I was chair. And, and as I say, I, I cannot tell you how, how much that has weighed on me um, for, for 20 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like some of the you know Truth and Reconciliation Commission and things going on here in Canada with Indigenous peoples. Uh, it's the same thing, you know, talking about you know injustices and then abuses, whether it's sexual or mental health, mental abuse, you know, bullying, all these things that happen to different care, you know, people at different ages of their lives, but in, in care settings and in educational settings that are sometimes, uh, you know, um, we talk about you know intersectionalities, but we used to talk about like um mainstream school versus schools for the blind sort of things and so when you're in these situations especially as children there's a lot that can go on and when you hand, when you experience that as a child you know looking at that at, over the years of your life not dealing with that there is a lot of trauma that people didn't know was happening to others or know that that was wrong that they could speak out about so you know it must be like you said therapeutic in certain ways but tough i'm sure yeah, and I think it, it it impacts people differently. So I know that for me, it's been really cleansing, and I've been surprised by that. I've been surprised how cleansing it's been because it's helped me understand a lot about myself and reactions to things that I might exhibit that are not always the most constructive. You know, why do I behave that way? And now I think understanding why is the first important step to changing those reactions. And it's part of a process. I, I've also got involved in a major way in meditation. I eat uh, keto now. Um, I've done a lot of really great lifestyle things that make me feel like I'm in my best condition at the moment than I've ever been. I've got more energy now than I had when I was in my 20s. But just that, that side of um, coming to terms with why you are the way you are in certain situations. For me, that is incredibly uh, helpful. And perhaps it requires a certain degree of self-awareness and self-analysis that can be painful. But for me, it's been really worthwhile. Yeah, well, I mean, these are difficult things that you're, you're sort of bringing up or, or with, that you're starting to, you know, remember as you as you open up about things like this. And it, it can't be easy, but especially in the time that we're in now where more of these things are coming coming to the forefront and this stuff is being talked about more, you know, with the, the Me Too movement happening and then just abuse in general, which it's it, it's like anything and it, it ties into power structures and stuff like that at the time where you don't know that that it's necessarily wrong at the time, even though you you, you don't feel good about it. And then it, it does come down to the fact that this mental stuff weighs on us, whether we realize it or not sometimes. And then mm. by finally kind of getting it out there and, you know, that's at least a step in the right direction. And it's a, it's a gradual thing for to change and it happens obviously in so many different uh, communities and workplaces and stuff around the world but you know the blindness community is an area that hasn't talked about it as much and i think it, it's, it's starting to be talked about more and more but um i definitely commend you for for sharing those thoughts because it's something we want to keep talking about on outlook just to remind people that uh you know it's 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 tough to discuss but it's it's something that it's it happens to people and we're never going to kind of get anywhere if we don't sort of open up about it a bit more and try to change these uh these structures a bit so absolutely and i think particularly for somebody who has been you know a, a part of the blind community especially the online blind community for so long um 
that if I can find it inside me to talk about these things, it, it really may help somebody because people have a false perception of, you know, people who, who have a bit of a profile having some sort of a major charmed, perfect life, and right. no one has that. Um, and so if we, can, if we can share a bit of ourselves, hopefully it'll help. Definitely. Thanks again for talking about that. And, um, you know, we're coming down to the we last few about, minutes still here. still five minutes. But uh, I'd like to ask you then, some of the things you're interested in that are beyond these, these things you've done, advocacy and technology, are, you're, you're into meditation, as you said, but as far as music goes, uh, you're, are you a Beatles collector or just a big I Beatles am. fan? I am a major, I, I can bore people witless with <laughs> stuff about the Beatles. And, um, We're going to switch this to cool a Beatles thing. podcast. Thanks for being our first guest. Yeah, five-minute Beatles, <laughs> Beatles uh, segment here. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. That's cool. Yeah, well, for example, when um, the new Beatles remixes that have been coming out since they started with Sgt. Pepper back in 2017, whenever one of these new ones come out, uh, we have a special on Mushroom FM because the cool thing is New Zealand gets these before everybody else. Normally, they drop at about two or three in the morning my time. And of course, that right. is way early the previous day, Eastern time, and still the right. previous day in the UK. So what I've been doing with every release is um, jumping on the air the moment these releases come out and we play them, we talk about the history behind the songs, how they were recorded, what they mean. And of course, there's all sorts of speculation about that. And so whenever these new Beatles remixes come out, it's a really big Mushroom event. <laughs> mushroom FM event. Um, what, what about that documentary that was out recently? Did you watch that or do you stick to more of the music? Ah, the, the Get Back documentary? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I loved that. It was just amazing to see how that sausage was made because I've actually yeah. got all of that raw material. I've got it all. And what was extraordinary for me about what peter jackson did and he lives just down the road from me by the way here uh, oh, in, i gotta make it to new zealand some sometime definitely yeah, I, Same kept, here. I kept wanting to knock on peter's door and say peter let me have a play with what you've got but sure. what was amazing was the way that they restored that material because i've heard the original tapes and there's no way you could possibly hear you know what you heard on that documentary it's remarkable technology Mm -hmm. yeah. We hear it all to come together, as you said, and uh, I'm definitely a Lord of the Rings fan. So uh, I, I, he, the man's done some great, great projects, and uh, yeah, but that was the a Beatles-related one. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so you mentioned Mushroom FM, um, which people can find at mushroomfm.com. Did you want to just speak briefly about that and sort of how that came about? Obviously, you've done so many things in radio throughout throughout your life. That, that would be great to talk <laughs> well, yeah, about. Yeah, it's but... so cute to hear you going from like back in terrestrial early radio days, early when you were four or five, and then to hear like at Christmas you used to talk to kids, other kids about the holidays and what they were up to, all the way to internet radio and Mushroom FM, as Brian said. The name is yeah. definitely memorable. Well, Mushroom FM was a bit of an accident. I, I was going to take my show, which I've been doing for a very long time now, called The Mosin Explosion, onto my own server. And when I tried to do that, a few people said, oh, can we come too? So there was this accidental radio station that grew from that. And when I was thinking about it, I thought, well, what do we want this radio station to be? And I thought we want it to be fun, fun to listen to and fun to work at. So then I thought, fun guys, okay, fun guys, mushroom, mushroom FM, the home of the fun guys. So it's a really <laughs> bad pun. And we have uh, mostly blind broadcasters from around the world. Everybody's a volunteer, including me. And uh, we, in the last six years or so, have specialized in music from the 50s through the 80s. 
and we have a lot of fun doing it. We have a couple of Canadians uh, working on Mushroom FM, actually. And it's just a blast. We we really enjoy it. And the reaction that we get from people is just so wonderful. We you know, People have made us a part of their lives. And when you consider how much choice there is out there, I really appreciate that. I don't take it for granted. Yeah, definitely to have listeners who might be interested in the radios, like I said, internet radio. This is Radio Western here on, on the dial, if you're local, whatever. But the fact that we can stream now and internet radio is such a big thing in a, in a way for people to broadcast if they they don't want to do it the you know the community way or the mm. bigger um, market way mm. everybody's familiar with so much. Yeah, absolutely. So it's great to so great to have you on today, Jonathan Mosen. So much to talk about. People can go to mosen.org. That's m o s e n.org. To learn more, check out the Mosen at Large podcast. And uh, yeah, I think that just about does it. We'd, we'd love to have you on again someday. Thanks so much for joining us on Outlook. Thank you both. It's been a blast. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jonathan. Send us an email. Outlook on Radio Western at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at Outlook. CFB and on Facebook, facebook.com slash Outlook on Radio Western.